Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, what are you doing? <laughs> I... You're mouthing my words and it is off-putting. <laughs> yeah. Um, it came from, you know, my girlfriend does that to me every time we order food, you know? Yeah. And they're going to ask me for my phone number and my address and she will, as I'm standing there talking to the person at the Chinese restaurant or whatever... She will mouth my phone number along with me and my address just to make me laugh. So every person who works at any Chinese restaurant in North Hollywood thinks I'm crazy <laughs> because I can't say my phone number and address without cracking up. <laughs> they probably think you're, you know, high. <laughs> so, but, um, all right. Uh, some stuff to get out of the way at the top of the show, I would say. Yeah, let's do it. Um, um, one th- is we want to, we, we really want to encourage people to go to the website yeah, the blog is going very well. Like it's something that I am very proud of. Not just the stuff that Tyler and I have written, but our our other writers like um like Scott uh Scott and I, Kyle Anderson, Matt Warren, uh Daniel Bergamini, um Jason Eakin hasn't written anything ri- lately, but not lately, yeah. Um Josh Long hasn't written anything in forever. Right. But um these are these are our writers. I didn't miss any, did I? No. I got them all. Yeah. Uh I'm really proud of the work that we're all doing and i think the the blog is something you should check out i think it is a, a, a good extension of what this show is mm-hmm. except that it also includes reviews of new films uh which we don't do on the show but i i guess i mean just uh aesthetically that's not even the right word but just i, I feel like the the blog is in the voice of our show it it oh it, it okay i thought you said it isn't the voice of our show. No, it's in the, the yes, blog very is much so. in the voice of our show. Yes, I would say it captures the spirit of what uh, we try to be, uh, which is which is good. And, and we are very thankful to those guys. And the fact is, you know, uh, we do none of us get gets paid. I mean, of course, we get the donations, but that basically just keeps the the website and everything Pay, yeah. running, uh, pays the bills. Uh, so, you know, the only payment that uh, any of us get is exposure and so, uh, you know, uh, these guys are good writers, and they're putting stuff out there. Uh, you know, they're basically volunteers. So uh, please go and read their stuff and, and leave comments. You know, be uh, be encouraging. So, yeah, I wanted to let everyone – we wanted to let everyone know about that because it is – you know, it, David, it took me a while to to get on board with, with where you were. But uh, now that we do have, like, new content – daily pretty yeah. much uh it is pretty exciting it's yeah. it's neat that uh yeah, that mean, it's not just a weekly yeah. thing anymore we're not a full-time blog in the sense that there's stuff updated throughout the day usually but right. there will be a you know you can usually you can pretty much bank on there being at least one new piece up there a day and they're you and they're and they're generally long form i'd say maybe 600 words is the average yeah uh, we are also very verbose. Is that what you're talking about when you say it's in the style no. of our show? <laughs> yeah, that is part of it. Um, but no, I just want to reiterate, reiterate that the, the both the content and the look of the blog. Once again, we have um, Sean Ingram, my my co-host from my other podcast, to thank for designing the blog. And if you want him to do some work on your website, uh, I guess email previously on show at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> just that little plug. And I did want to specify because I actually did get. I have gotten uh, a couple of emails about this that uh, we we've rolled pretty much everything into this site and into this blog. Somebody was was emailing about like, hey, what happened to 
the top hundred characters, you know, or the top hundred movies. Uh, there is a drop-down menu on the site uh, under under categories, mm-hmm. and you can search for like BP top hundred movies or BP top hundred characters. Yeah. So you know, we we we're trying to to go back, and if something has not been categorized, uh, I'm trying to do that so mm-hmm. that it can be found fairly fairly easily. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, so yeah, you can also check those categories if you just want to look at reviews. It'll just show you right. If you just want to look at movie recommendations. Uh, I think there's no. one. Is there one for my movie journal? I know that's kind of a new uh, yes. thing. Yes, yes, there is. Yeah, so if you want to read my 2011 movie journal, no. which I'm enjoying doing, but apparently at least one person in the, on the comments is not happy with the rules that I have set out for myself. Oh, indeed, yes. Because absolutely. I'm only writing about movies I haven't seen before. Right. Um, and I'm not including anything I see at press screenings because those there's going to be reviews of. Right. Um, and then I also... Uh, I don't really like to talk specifically about what I do mm-hmm. for uh, my day job, but I sometimes watch movies as a matter as, as a course of my job, and uh, I won't be writing about those either. Okay, out of professionalism, right? Absolutely. And David, I wanted to I wanted to bring this up actually real quick. Okay. Uh, in regards to uh, we we've kind of joked about a, an email that we got about you know not seeing enough movies or like we need to see more movies and all that. And admittedly, like I don't see very many movies. You've been on a tear lately. You've been seeing all kinds of movies. I'm I'm, I'm trying. It was a, a New Year's resolution. Yeah. I actually, I know people make fun of New Year's resolutions, but I actually do set them for myself, and I've done a pretty good job. I think. I mean, I do no such thing, um, and uh, and it shows. But I mean, New Year's 2008. I guess 08, 09. Mm-hmm. Um, my resolution was to dress better, and now here you here you have that tie. I got a tie on. My the, shirt's tucked in. Yeah, with the rolled up sleeves, you do kind of have <laughs> a kind of an eighties vibe right now because <laughs> it's a skinny tie. Yeah, yeah. but um, but uh, as I, it is kind of exciting going through. Uh, I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, about this. Um, my friends and I uh, have a weekly movie night in which we watch movies either that. Some of many of us have been meaning to see, or that we recommend, or something like that. Chances are, at least one of the primary people that go has not seen this film, and um, and it's really, it's really so much. It's fun, and there is a feeling of accomplishment when you finally get around to seeing, you know, Wages of Fear mm-hmm. or um, you know, Umberto D or or for me, like it's a Wonderful Life. I uh, finally got to see that, and and it's it, it's every week, and it's just a lot of fun. And in the spirit of that, that exhilaration, I finally, at long last, watched Dog Day Afternoon the other day. Yeah. David. And uh, now, what does this have to do with the blog? Are we done talking about the blog? Uh, it was more al- along the lines of uh, I used your movie journal as a transition, movies okay. that you haven't seen before. Right. And uh, but I would before we leave the blog, I okay, want to yes. mention I mentioned comments. I would love it if you guys would comment on the blog just to keep the conversations i like the idea that our blog posts are the beginnings of conversations mm-hmm. uh, i like to keep the conversations going in, in the comments it would it would make me nothing would make me happier than to see that things that we've written on the blog have uh inspired conversations or debates in the comment section so um just wanted to throw that out there may i uh i try to steer away from such things these days because <laughs> it's just i internalize it and i just uh, hate myself okay so you finally watched sydney lubet's dog day afternoon yeah and uh david i don't know if you know this or not that movie's pretty great yeah oh it's amazing it is uh you know it's there are movies that are regarded as, as classics or like people say oh you got to see it and sometimes if it's been 
built up too much. You watch it and you think, yeah, that was good. That was fine. But you, you almost can't help but be disappointed. I had heard so much about Dog Day Afternoon. I wasn't expecting to be disappointed, but I expected, like, yeah, it'll be a fun, suspenseful movie. And, and there you go. Um, and I knew that it had gotten a couple, uh, a few Academy Award nominations. And I knew that, you know, the, the what, what at the time I assume must have been a twist. Yeah. Which is that Al Pacino's character right. is, is gay, and when he refers to his wife, it's... Uh, well, he has a wife, like a uh-huh. female wife and a, and a family, but also Chris Sarandon as yeah. uh, this character, Leon. And uh, and I remember that it's like, He's man... He's also great in the movie. He doesn't get enough he people got to a, talk about He Chris got a nomination, I think. But I feel like these days people talk about Pacino and they talk about John Cazale. Yeah. But no, he's he's great. He's yeah. really wonderful, but he like he doesn't overplay... Because uh, his character, you know, he kind of has like these press on nails and they show pictures of him like in the wedding dress yeah. on their wedding day. So like he is kind of effeminate, but he doesn't he doesn't overplay that. He really just in many ways, he evokes Pacino's female wife. Uh-huh. And uh, and it's just, yeah, a really great performance. And one that I know Chris Sarandon from, of course, The Princess Bride, uh-huh. which he plays Prince Humperdinck. And I know him as the speaking voice of Jack Skellington. Those oh. are the two things I know him from. And what about the uh, the dad from Child's Play? Okay, what? I, I, I've not seen Child's Play. You never saw Child's Play? It's on my uh, instant queue, but it's not a huge uh, priority for me. I I think Child's... I, I, the sequels suck, but I of think course. Child's Play is kind of... It's all in good fun, but I, I think it's fun. Yeah, it's it's one... You know, it's, it's like... Uh, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and all those movies that, that came about at that time. And you go to the first one and and, and it's surprisingly intent on frightening you. Right. As, as opposed, opposed to, to the ones that just want to make you laugh or be like, oh, that kind uh, of death could never happen. The term is where they, they, they turn into what's called quip killers. Quip killers? Yeah. In that they, make a, they kill and then they oh. say something funny. Yeah. Jason never talked, but they turned his uh, silence and the usually the overly talkative victims <laughs> into a joke in itself. Um, but but Dog Day Afternoon, what uh, what it fascinated me about it is that, and I guess I should have assumed this because I love Sidney Lumet, is how inherently human the film is. Uh-huh. It's certainly I didn't expect a heist film by any stretch, but uh, and because it is so human, two things come about from that. An incredible sense of humor. There are moments that are that are laugh out loud funny, mixed with more suspense than a film that is purposely suspenseful. Not to imply that the film wasn't purposely suspenseful, but like there are movies that are classified as oh, this is a suspense film, and they play it up with music or whatever. But because these are just people under pressure, uh-huh. and they and even and and they all seem a little unhinged. But still, undeniably, just normal people. Uh, you know that at any moment something terrible could happen. Like one person just snaps and's like, "You know what? I've had enough. I think I'm going to kill everyone." <laughs> and you really think that could happen? And uh, and of course, I mean, we you mentioned John Cazale being uh, you know talked about, and uh, as well as well he should be because early on, like I kind of found his character bothersome because just like this guy's kind of dumb. Uh-huh. Which makes which makes him dangerous, but it's just like I don't like spending time with this man. <laughs> but after a while, you you just realize like, oh, he certainly didn't know what he was getting himself into. He's like doing a favor for a friend, and 
and you wind up just sympathizing with everyone. I love yeah. Charles Durning in the film, uh-huh. and even the FBI agent, who of course has is always doing something, uh, always planning something. He does seem actually sympathetic, not like the, not one of the FBI guys from Die Hard. From Die Hard. Well, but, you should start a uh, movie journal like I do from the website. Yeah, but I don't watch an, I don't watch enough. Like I definitely watch one new movie a week um, yeah. that I haven't seen before. Of course, my friends and I also watched Into Great Silence uh, on yes, Saturday. Yes, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Okay, well, perhaps I'll write them. I'm not. I probably where won't. would Dog Day Afternoon rank in terms of Sydney Lumet, Sydney Lumet films for you? I could probably uh, off the top of my head. Give me like, your top five. Top five Sydney Lumet films. Uh, 12 Anger Men. That's number one. Network. Okay. Um, the Verdict. I really like The Verdict. Okay. Uh, this one might be number four, uh-huh. actually, now that I think about it. And what will be next? Next. I'm uh, to think. What, are, what's, what are the other big ones that he did? Well, I can't. I can't think off the top of my head. I don't have his filmography in front of me. I do like. I do really love Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, but I feel like that would not be number five. Yeah. But, but he's done. He's done like a, a lot of really wonderful films. I think. Um, you'd be now. I love Network. Yeah. But I think that's number four for me. I think Dog Day Afternoon is my favorite to in that film. Okay. Then The Verdict. Okay. Then Twelve Angry Men. Why do you hate uh, Twelve Angry Men so much? And Network. I mean, you abhor Network. <laughs> Why do I, you? I love all those movies. Oh, okay. But uh, I think Dog Day Afternoon, The Verdict, and Twelve Angry Men. Right. That that that. Those uh, those are the only movies you need to guarantee that you have had one of the greatest careers <laughs> in the history of Hollywood. Uh, you know what? Now that I, I Dog Day Afternoon probably number three for me. I probably like it more than The Verdict. Um, I love The Verdict, but just as far just the just the kinetic you know the kinetic. Uh, energy of Dog Day Afternoon. He really uh-huh. finds that without overplaying it, without resorting to like fast-paced editing or something like that. Yeah, there's a there's a leanness to Dog Day Afternoon that I really like. That's a really good fra- way to phrase it. Yes. Um, anyway, but yeah, uh, so I was very excited to to see that to see that movie, and and I want to re- I want people to rest assured, I'm slowly but surely i'm making way making my way through every movie ever made and uh i don't know if i'll get there yeah but i'm working on it yeah. i'm at least seeing probably 45 older classics that i haven't seen before a year yeah you know my idea of like i don't really believe in heaven but my idea of heaven is mm-hmm. that i can just Stay current and keep watching movies and keep watching new TV shows. That I could just like go to heaven. It would be like like my apartment, and mm. I'd have cable, and I could go to the movies or at least or get you know DVDs sent to me, and I would f- live for eternity with my girlfriend, my apartment, and watch TV and movies. I want you to. That's my idea of. Heaven. I want you to really examine what you've just put out there because you switch movies to books, and there is a Twilight Zone movie uh, episode <laughs> about this with yeah. Burgess Meredith. Yeah, but he's gonna die. He's that's not, true. That's not life everlasting. I'm saying like, show like, TV shows created by people who aren't even born yet on networks that don't even exist yet. I'm gonna miss them because I'm gonna die. Yes. I want to. I want to see what happens with TV. I want to see where TV goes. I want to see where the movies go. Oh, okay. That's. I don't. Yeah. I, I, that's that's uh, what my idea of heaven is to just stay current. <laughs> you know, it's in, it's interesting. <laughs> just. So really, the idea of <laughs> well, my haunting, fear is becoming, a haunting uh, is what you would want. Yeah. You would want your ghost to just 
still be involved on Earth, but not like to keep people out of your house, but just so you're just like, oh, wow. An- they actually had the balls to make another mo- another TV show about Italian gangsters, and it's pretty good. Yeah. That's really something. <laughs> 50 years later, that's well, pretty ballsy. My biggest fear in life is becoming out of touch, and... uh <laughs> no, my biggest How fear, can, okay. my biggest fear as a pop culture fan, is becoming out of touch. I guess, mm-hmm. and dying is the ultimate out of touch. Like, didn't Jim Morrison say that? <laughs> what I'm saying is that people who died like three years ago have no idea who the Jonas Brothers are. It is, you know, what it is something. Uh, not to turn this uh, into a maudlin uh, affair, but um, that is actually one of the things that. Uh, always get even this even to this day my my dad passed away a long time ago now yeah and to this day i still it's not quite in, as instinctive as it was uh the first few years but i kind of keep a little mental list of the movies that he would have loved right as if someday he's going to show back up and be like all right tyler catch me up right that's not going to happen and that fact really depresses me but i can't stop myself from doing that yeah i can so, see that so it's very sad okay well from that sad note indeed Let's start celebrating some individual achievements. Yeah, we did. Um, this is our sort of become our sort of standard uh, late February, early March tradition tied to the Oscars. Bef- week before the Oscars, we do our best of Oscar week. We do Oscar wrap up or Oscar tear down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> week after, we do our Oscars, our individual achievements, our favorite individual achievements of the past year. So. Um, I know you wanted to start with one you didn't even have a name for the category. Yeah, which was just uh, miscellaneous. Even though we already talked about it, we did our honorable mention two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, and I and I had a movie written down, but it's like, but there were specific things about the movie that I wanted to to mention. Um, I was uh, fascinated that the movie Tangled that was not nominated for uh, animated film, and uh, from an animation standpoint, it's a lot of fun, but the songs are great. And I'm not somebody who really, especially in animated films, especially in Disney movies, like, I can appreciate, oh yeah, those, those songs from Beauty and the Beast, those are those are really good. These songs from Lion King, those are really good. But, usually it's just like, okay, yeah, alright, Mulan. You don't, there doesn't need to be songs here. Like, it's, it, they're really awful. So it, 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 it usually distracts me. I was never, in high school, I was never somebody who liked musicals. Uh, I always just thought like, hey, can we get back to the story? Uh-huh. And the characters, because that's who I am. I'm kind of a jerk. But uh, but the music in Tangled not only does not only do they do a very good job of incorporating them into the story, but they're also just very they're very catchy, often very funny, and just very pleasing to the ear. Um, I probably would not buy the soundtrack or anything. It's not something that I would listen to out of the context of the film. But I might actually buy the movie on DVD. It was. A lot of fun, and it had such a good villain. And I know that's like individual achievement. That means like in this case, the writing of the villain, the uh, animation of the villain, and the voicing of the villain. I don't. I should have looked this up. I'm sorry. I don't remember the name of the actress, but she wasn't a big name. She was a big Broadway uh, actress, and so she really Katina sold. Menzel. Uh, maybe I don't know. I, that's how much I don't remember the name. Okay. And and of course that sounds terrible because maybe. Maybe that's why they want big name actors, so that you come away saying, "Hey, I remember, you know, Zach Levi, or I remember whoever." Not that he's a big name, but he sort of is um, to, cer- to certain people. Yeah. Um, but just uh, 
Not to me. That's just such a. It's just a, a great movie all around. It just has a good sense of humor. It's it's everything a a Disney movie could be, should be, but hasn't been for a long time. And just wonderful music, great villain. And so, while I'm talking about the movie in general, those elements, those specific elements, were what were what really won me over. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a second to talk about a couple of categories that you don't have on your okay. on your list. Um, these are both Oscar-y categories. Okay. Um, but a movie that I think went completely unmentioned. Maybe it was an honorable mention on our top ten. The Coen Brothers' True Grit. It wasn't an honorable mention. Neither, Neither one of us, us mentioned yeah. it. And maybe it's because it's not the Coen's best film, but it's not... I don't think there's any real flaws in the film. I think it's... I think it's... Uh, a really solid film. It's just not. There were just enough things that were better, and it wasn't. It didn't stand out in a way that would have made it an honorable mention. What but I what I consider I flaws are small things okay. that uh, people actually debate me on. So it's not even that people say, "Yeah, but I looked past it." Like some people, it's just my my own personal preference. But what I want to talk about is, uh, and this is a guy who has had no shortage of praise over his career, but you know what? He keeps deserving it every time. Mm-hmm. And that's Roger Deakins, the cinematographer. Oh, yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he's, a, I don't know. There's, if you look at, uh, other movies that were very well shot this year, um, and I, I want to say Harry Potter and the, Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one, even though I don't remember who shot it. Is it Eduardo Serra? I can't remember who shot it. Um, yeah, tell me. <laughs> well, you keep talking. Um, but just lately, my taste, I guess, in cinematography has run away from the Eduardo Serras and the Matthew Libatiques, uh, and even like the Roger Pratts, um, to a certain, at least, appearance of naturalism, like almost a throwback. You know? Yeah. There's nothing about the look of True Grit that says this is. This is nowish, or this is cutting edge. You know, there was the well, big and there's nothing that says, "Look at me, look at me, please look at me." Right. You know, um, there, the, I mean, there, there was a big trend a few years ago toward, um, uh, like bleach bypass in uh, post production and cinematography. Anyway, that's a, a technical discussion that doesn't need to be had here. But uh, there's, even though I know that he's doing things, there's a, he's he, he, he who who shot it? Eduardo Serra. I was right. Well done. Um, I mean, he's doing things that are, t- he's using a newer cameras, he's got more equipment for, you know, he's probably got a lot of freedom to light things however he wants, mm-hmm. uh, at least on the indoor scenes. A lot of, I mean, it's the fact that a lot of this stuff is outdoors mm-hmm. and he's got filters and stuff they didn't have, you know, even 30, 40 years ago. And, uh, uh despite all that, it looks like a, just so natural and, and real. And it looks, he's able to, there's a sequence that, Again, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about how something should be praised just because it's difficult, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because level of difficulty doesn't necessarily mean artistic whatever. Right. But the part where they're throwing the cornbread up in the air and shooting at it, like, right. the, that's astonishing. The Those shots, the way they go from ground level to up to the sky. And, I mean, you probably even know from having taken some production classes when we were in film school that the change in light from when it, where you're pointing at the ground and pointing at the sky, you know. It scared me off of doing stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, and to move the camera that freely through that kind of space yeah. and up toward the sun and have it 
have it all work. It, it's almost like, and this comes back to the naturalism. It's almost like the camera is a human eye in that in that sequence, and that's uh, that the the whole film in that sequence alone really astounded me. So. Well, not only does it seem like it's a human eye, it seems like it's uh, Haley Steinfeld's eye, right? Because of course the whole the whole film is from her perspective, but in that moment. It it really captures how she must be feeling right now, um, yeah. And Roger Deakins is not a cinematographer who is who can't do overly stylized things. You watch assassination assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. You look at the man who wasn't there. He can adapt his style to whatever he's shooting, but the kind of bare bones, rough and tough honesty of True Grit is something that he captured very well. Even even No Country for Old Men had some like. some sort of stylistic elements like what they chose to have him focus on whereas this it was very it was very straightforward shots of no country for old men Mm -hmm. that's uh, some of the just most beautiful image images and he still has never won right like everyone expected this to be his year i don't know yeah i don't think he ever has i'm happy i like you know i've ragged on inception a lot i like wally fister he's really good at what he does and Inception's a really good-looking movie, so I, I've got no real, real complaints there. Yeah. Uh, another thing, real quick, um, best visual effects, and people know where I'm going because we talked about this at length with Graham and Chris from Comedy Film Nerds, but Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah. Because this is not difficulty that we're talking about. I'm not talking about what you said, mo- like, instead of best, it's most. Yeah. That's not, even though Scott Pilgrim has a lot of it visual lot, effects. Yeah. Uh, it's not like a Transformers thing where they're just, like, dominating the movie, and the movie is the visual effects. Right. Uh, Edgar Wright and his visual effects team, I wish I had looked up who did it, um, it used visual effects in uh, innovative ways, ways that hadn't been done before, and ways that are absolutely uh, integral to the film's aesthetic and even to the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just thought I would give that a little shout out. Absolutely. So let's get into our the ones that we do have the same category for. Yeah. Here's how I propose this. We should probably have talked about this beforehand. Yeah. Okay. I say we do supporting categories, leading categories, then writer, then director at the end. Sounds good. Okay, let's start with supporting actress. Okay. Um, and just to make sure, I don't want people to get confused. This is not best supporting actress. It's not like, because if I were to say who I think the best supporting actress is of the year, I might go with one of the, you know, one of the Oscar nominees or something like that. These yeah. are just individual achievements that maybe not have maybe have not been heralded quite so much this year. And also, for a number of these stories, I'm going to have more than one. I'm going to have two. Really? Yeah, I'm naming them. <sighs> Damn it. Uh, we I, did had, animal, animal I had mentions. several, but uh, you've... All right. <laughs> uh, and also, I'm going to say... Uh, I mean, Lee Unkridge did a great job with Toy Story 3, but at this point, Pixar is such a collective that right. they're pretty... Uh, I didn't qualify them. Every time I thought about any of these categories, I just kept going like... I don't know. It takes three... It takes hundreds of people three years to make one of these movies I, I i can't single anyone out so toy story 3 is still my favorite film of the year but it's not going to show up in any of these here. okay fair enough uh so let's start with supporting actors okay I, I, when i say i'm gonna have two i'm gonna have one i mentioned and one i focus on fair enough okay supporting actors uh mine is uh from a film that you've not seen which is black swan uh-huh. uh barbara hershey ah i like her yeah and she's really great it's it's a character we've seen before which is the mom who is putting way too much of herself into her child, whether it be, or, 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 you know, there's the dad, you know, the, the, like the sports dads who put way too much pressure on their kids. And in this case, uh, 
she plays, you know, the the mom of a ballerina who is living out possibly the mom's dream. You're not sure. And that's okay. We've seen it before and we never like those people and we don't really like her. But there is no question that as much pressure as she puts on Natalie Portman's character, she does love her. There is no question in my mind. It's not, and th- and the love is not a perfunctory like, like oh I love her as long as she's doing what I want her to do, um, and she is rather she is domineering at times, but that that comes from a place of not wanting to have not necessarily wanting to, wanting to have power over her daughter, but she thinks that she knows what is best for her daughter. She knows. First off, from from like a rehearsal standpoint and, and a discipline standpoint, she knows, well, you can't live like this if you're going to live this dream. Uh-huh. So trying to keep her reined in on th- from that perspective. But I don't know, just also sees that for Natalie Portman, the, the dream is important for her as well, though you don't know if it's a function of her mom or it's her, it's her dream as well. You don't really know. Um, and so she just she had a difficult character to play and as far as the words on the page as much as i like black swan is my favorite movie as as we all know uh of last year um the script is is clunky and it's on the nose and it's melodramatic uh both in the good and bad sense that you and uh-huh. i discussed but um but it's also a lot of those supporting players really elevate the material a lesser actress would have just played, would have, you know what, would have played uh, Carrie's mom. You know, just kind of this psycho woman. When you were describing it, I was thinking of Piper Laurie. Right, except there's an actual, she's probably, she's not crazy. She's very sane. She, she probably has some misplaced priorities. But there is an actual palpable love there. She actually is protective of her daughter, overprotective to be, to be sure, but still loves her daughter, and so she has to play both things and kind of ground. You know, characters like her ha- have to ground this in some level of reality, and the relationship that Natalie Portman has with her mom is one that was more developed than I thought it was going to be in the film. And Barbara Hershey, I thought, did a great job. It, it was interesting that that uh, Mila Kunis was getting so much press as a possible supporting actress nominee. And there wasn't that much heat behind Barbara Hershey. And I thought, w- w- why? Uh-huh. She's really wonderful. But at the same time, maybe she was... I don't think of her performance as incredibly subtle. It's complex. Uh-huh. It's There's nuance to it, but it's not necessarily a subtle performance. But at the same time, maybe uh, in a film that is, a, a, that is as extreme as Black Swan, maybe her performance got swallowed up or something. But... Uh, but yeah, so uh, Barbara Hershey in Black Swan is really uh, just a really great performance. Okay, uh, supporting actress for me, I want to mention Dale Dickey from Winter's Bone. Oh for yeah, being she's great, terrifying and nurturing at the same time. Yeah, like in the same scene in the same moment. And uh, she won the uh, Independent Spirit Award. Oh, good for her. And then the one I'm going to focus on once again, we're back to Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Ellen Wong, who played Knives Chow hmm. in the movie. Um, and I mean, part of this certainly is in the script, but uh, to be to to stand out like that, she she Ellen Wong took a character that could certainly be one note. She's not the main character. There's not a lot of layers to who she is. Uh, but you know when she's 
hurt by something that Scott has said or when she's hopeful or when she's cast all abandon aside the 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 cutaways to her face or her exclamations are not just comic relief they speak volumes to me and there's a reason that at the end of the movie Knives is the character that you like the best and I mean I don't I don't want to spoil anything but I'm very happy with the way the movie ended mm-hmm. because um I, I, I can't say anything without spoiling. We already kind of spoiled it two weeks ago. Oh, okay. Well, spoiler for the end of Scott Pilgrim. I imagine most people who listen to this show have seen it already. Well, we do. We have mentioned it, I'm going to say, 8,000 times yeah. in the last three months. <laughs> um, I'm glad that uh, Scott and Knives don't end up together because she's too good for him. Hmm. And, uh, and, and I think I get a lot of that out of Ellen Wong's performance, which is just uh, touching and hilarious. Uh, again, the way that Dale Dickey is terrifying and nurturing at the same time, uh, Ellen Wong, when she's, uh, like, um, angry and venting to her sister and dyeing her hair, mm-hmm. it's a, it's hilarious. That scene is hilarious, yeah. but also very human and touching. Uh, I think it's a, it's a fantastic performance. I like her performance because, and you could say this about a lot of the characters in the film, but her more than anybody else, everything that was going on inside... That, that everything that we felt in high school that we were feeling inside, uh-huh. she puts outside. It's yeah. all out there. Yeah. Like all of the, uh, and the humor comes from what would it be like if everything that we felt in high school, uh-huh. we showed <laughs> to the extent that we felt them, you, yeah. you know, and, uh, and just how incredibly extreme and, and hormonal. And when I say hormonal, I don't mean female. I mean, teenage, right. uh, how, how raw and, just unflinching her performances and there's humor to be found in there. But at the same time, the humor comes, I think from a certain recognizability of like, yeah, <laughs> I see me there. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Supporting actor for you, Tyler. Uh, okay. Well, since we're mentioning some and talking about others, right. uh, I've already talked at length about Matt Damon in, in true grit. I think he's really amazing. And, uh-huh. It never fails to impress me how Matt Damon will often play what I would venture to say are thankless roles. Because next to Jeff Bridges and Haley Steinfeld, like two very sure of themselves characters, uh, sure, yeah, uh, he plays a guy who's very, who has qualities that people don't like. He's very vain and kind of egotistical and is made to look foolish several, many times over during the film. And he just plays it. Yeah. And he doesn't wink at you. He commits. It's it's like The Departed. You know, he played a character that was Weasley and we didn't like him. Uh-huh. And he just played it with commitment. And I, I appreciate that. And I loved his performance. Uh, but then also from True Grit, Josh, uh, Josh Brolin, uh, who I'll repeat once again, the you and I, you and I talk about this with uh, Animal Kingdom, that Josh Brolin is at his most, his character is dumb and might actually have something wrong with him mentally. Uh-huh. Um, he is very, I can only think, I, Cro-Magnon, like he's, uh-huh. he's very, like they even give him like more of a unibrow and stuff. Which is again, a joke on Matt Damon's character. Cause mm-hmm. he spent the whole time talking about how, what a wily criminal this guy is. Right. He's been chasing him across three states or whatever. Right. And that's the thing is the guy is not smart, but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. In fact, it makes him more dangerous because even when his boss says, do not hurt this girl, he still is going to hurt her because 
he can't see tomorrow. Yeah, he can't, he can't think on the moment. Yeah, and right now, all he knows, he doesn't even know, hey, if I disobey my boss, he'll probably kill me. My boss is very dangerous, and he'll probably kill me. He doesn't even think in those terms. He just thinks, I really want to kill this girl right now. You know what I think I'm going to do? Kill her. <laughs> like, it's just that, and he's just a very... I was going to say he thinks he'll cross the bridge when he comes to it, but not even that. I think he walks yeah. through his life going, oh, a bridge. <laughs> exactly. And he's just like, you don't want to burn bridges. He burns it while he's on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he burns it before he crosses it. It's like, I don't like that. I don't like the look of that bridge. What are some other bridge sayings? He wants to have his bridge and eat it, too. <laughs> uh the whole nine bridges okay uh uh, bridge saved is a bridge earned (laughs) all right we're done we're done that's it but the the uh performance i really wanted to talk about was in the film get low Uh which is a movie that i was uh i liked i didn't love i was uh kind of disappointed in it everything about it seemed like a movie i would like but the director makes some bad decisions and the script is not that great um, and of course, I love Robert Duvall. He is actually not who I'm going to be talking about when uh, when we discuss lead. He has two really wonderful scenes that are worthy of his talent. Uh. The the other scenes, not so much. However, one person who has amazing scenes and does ev- and does great things with them is Bill Murray. Uh, to the point that I really expected an Oscar nomination for him, but then after a while, it's like, okay, I guess there's no campaign going on here. Yeah. I guess that's done. But uh, but man, he's amazing. Like, he really, you know, Bill Murray with Rushmore kind of reinvented himself as this guy who is very, very deadpan. And of course, then there was Lost in Translation and Broken Flowers. And I mean, and he has some of that here, but it's it's all it's still kind of that he was always dry. He was never cr- he, he was very seldom crazy, except in like What About Bob and yeah. and uh Little Shop of Horrors and stuff. But, like, in Ghostbusters and Stripes, he always had, like, this look of bemusement on his face. Yeah. Uh, And he he kind of reverts to that for this film, where his character's very sincere, but he also delivers lines. I mean, he plays a funeral director in this small town who is running out of money, but he's from Chicago, and he just... And I believe his first scene, he's talking about, like, you know... No one dies here. In Chicago, people knew how to die. Like, <laughs> And he's like, shot, stabbed, whatever it takes. And it was just a really... And that that is... A, those lines, are they're funny, but the wrong actor could oversell them. Uh-huh. With, when Bill Murray says it, you're like, well, he believes it. He's <laughs> he's upset that people don't die here. <laughs> and uh, but, but throughout, he also... And he's also kind of a sleazeball. He, he knows what he needs to do to get money. But uh, but he actually does care about he finds himself caring about other people. And it's just a really it's a surprisingly complex character. I think that he's the best written character in the film and really well played because he couldn't he couldn't do his usual. I, I'm, I think I might be sounding insulting when I say this, but he couldn't have played him the way he played him in Lost in Tra- the character in Lost in Translation. Certainly not Broken Flowers. He had to kind of resort to this what he was in the 80s and uh and i think the part is better for it and i uh i recommend get low for the for two great robert duvall scenes and even one of them is kind of screwed up by the director who cuts away when he really shouldn't um and and all of bill murray's scenes that is that is and he's in it throughout so it's not like it's not he's not like william hurt in a history of violence where 
I recommend the whole movie, but like he's only in eight minutes. He's he's there throughout, and it's just uh, a man, such a great performance, and a lot of fun. Okay, here okay. we go. Supporting actor for me, I've just got the one, but it has to be talked about, and it was nominated by the Oscars, uh, probably probably by the Independent Spirit Awards as well. I don't, I didn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that's John Hawks, yeah, in Winter's Bone. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about. We've talked about doing an episode. We've talked about talking about um, the difference between a lead role and a supporting role. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the guidelines have to do with that a lead, uh, more than the other characters, has an arc. Right. Um, and supporting characters don't necessarily have an arc. Right. Now, clearly, Jennifer Lawrence is the lead in Winter's Bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... I would say John Hawks give us more, gives us more of an arc with Teardrop than you would expect from a supporting role. Right. Um, he's not just there to be the... I mean, he's he's her uncle, is that right? Yeah. Uncle, yes. Yeah, her, her dad is his brother. Right. Uh, and he's not just there to be his... Uh, to be her... Um, I don't know. Uh, do we, you know, I don't even know what to say because he's different things to her at different times in the movies. Right. In the movie. He's a he's a tormentor. He's a guide. He's a protector, uh, almost. Um, of sorts, yes. Yeah. Um, and then he has that scene at the end. And again, I mean, like with Ellen Wong, I, part of this goes to the screenplay. But... Um, he changes throughout the movie, or at least our perception of his him changes. Mm-hmm. That's in the screenplay, but he opens up. Yeah. Or he allows us to see that we weren't seeing all of him from the beginning. Yeah. And then his final scene in the movie is heartbreaking. Yeah. Because, like, you suddenly... It's almost like, you know, in a, in a less uh, show-offy way, it's almost like a twist. You know, where, where like... Once you've seen Usual Suspects and you go back and you watch it again, you realize, oh, it was here all along. Right. You know, and I feel like that's what it is with John Hawke's performance. Like, he's uh, so human and almost vulnerable, as vulnerable as Teardrop can be, in that last scene of his, that you have to think back and realize, like, oh, it was in him all along to be like this. And what I like about it is that... It, It colors every past scene differently in a great way. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, I think I was interrupting you. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> the uh, It's odd that you bring up the idea of le- uh, lead and supporting, and that actually, we actually were going to do an episode about that and then got distracted by the Super Bowl, um, or not the Super Bowl itself, but the discussion of it. Uh, that's what <laughs> that's, that episode's topic was going to be. Right. But um, <laughs> and we'll and we'll that. do it again one day. But yeah. uh, or we'll, do it, we'll do it for the we'll do it for the first time ever. <laughs> um, but the idea of of an arc uh-huh. and teardrop does have an arc, but because the script is true to his character and because he's true to his character or who the character really is, the arc is not artificial and it doesn't go as far as you think it would because by the end, I, I I'll speak in generalities because I really don't want to spoil winner's bone. Cause I know probably a lot of people, lot of people haven't seen it, it yet, yeah. but uh, at the end it's like, yo, he's changed. Not that much, though, because after this scene, he has to go. He's going to go and be him again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he'll he's changed for this person, but he's still him. 
Yeah. He there's only one it's not like his whole outlook has changed on life so much so that he can't do what he feels he has to do next. Um you know, he hasn't grown beyond that. He's grown in his relationship. Do you think we get like a spin-off sequel of just Teardrop? Teardrop's Revenge. Or uh, uh Winter's Bone Origins Teardrop. <laughs> 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 Would you go Origins? Because then you could see Teardrop and right. uh, is it Jessup? Yeah, you can see young, yeah. young Teardrop is, is played by James a- McAvoy. Anton Yelchin. Oh, I was going younger. Oh, okay. Oh, even younger than that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that's supporting actor for me. Okay, lead actress for you, Tyler Smith. David, uh huh. Watch out! Here we go. Though we all know I am not a big fan of the kids are all right. Oh, this is gonna be a one-two punch. I think. Okay. Go ahead. Because I know who you're going to say. I'm going to say Julianne Moore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't fault the acting, especially the big three, which is uh, Annette Benning, Julianne Moore, and Mark Ruffalo. Uh-huh. Mark Ruffalo, great, of course, wonderful, effortless in his performance. Uh, Annette Benning, really subtle, uh, but I don't know, just it really finds the core of that character. Um and they got all the press, and there was some talk about maybe maybe Julianne Moore. But it's like that's two lead actresses. They're gonna the the studio is probably gonna choose one to really push. Uh-huh. Uh, and if they don't, then the Academy probably will. And it's it is a shame that Julianne Moore ha- kind of got shut out um, because I was watching. Uh, I've been rewatching Thirty Rock on uh, Netflix. Watch instantly, and uh, I'm I'm to the I'm to the season where. Where she shows up as uh, like an old, an old friend of of Jack's, yeah. and she does like with that accent that everyone loves. I personally like the accent because I don't mind it because I'm not from Boston, but I just know right. that it, there was a lot of discussion online about how quote unquote bad her accent was. It's not. Here's the thing: it's consistent, and consistency is to me the most important thing. Right. It's a consistent. A- it's a consistent accent that is exaggerated. Yeah, on a show on Thirty Rock, everything's exagger- exaggerated, <laughs> and also she represents something to Jack Donaghy, which is his past, and to him, his past is this thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so she can't, you know, the past always looks better, and it looks more clear cut. So it stands to reason that her accent would be a little bit more clear cut. If they wanted her to play down, if this was more real, if this was I don't know Brotherhood or something like that, uh-huh. and someone is there from Boston. I'm sure she could play it down, but it's yeah. 30 Rock. Brotherhood, of course, is Providence. Right, yes, yes, I know. But uh, for, I picked it's, something where, like... It's Providence, not Boston. Right. It, uh, I don't know the difference. I do the same yeah, shitty nobody, accent for both. Nobody does. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But You uh, know what's amazing about Brotherhood is that you had Jason Clark, who's Australian, and, and Jason Isaacs, who's British, not only speaking in American accents, but speaking in uh, Rhode Island accents. I didn't know that Jason Clark was uh, Australian. Yeah. There's a part, there's a movie that I have reviewed that hasn't come out yet, so the review's not up yet, okay. um, directed by David Schwimmer called Trust, um, and Jason Clark is in it, and he's supposed to be an American, a Chicago cop, or no, he's an FBI agent, mm-hmm. um, and there's a couple times where, because the guy they're tracking bought his like cell phone in St. Louis, and there's a couple times where Jason Clark, though he's doing an American accent, says, St. Louis. Which mm. is the way an Australian or British person would say it. Right. I feel like, David Schwimmer, you're American. You're right there on set. Couldn't you say, hey, Jason, it's pronounced St. Louis if you're an American? Well, you know. Anyway. 
I can uh, see I can see David Schwimmer being way too accommodating. Yeah, but, check uh, the, check the blog for that review whenever that movie comes out. I can't remember I, when it is. But I don't want to talk at uh, the end of the month. Uh, okay. But I don't want to talk about uh, Julianne Moore in Thirty Rock. But watching. Oh, you don't. I don't. I've in had our enough. best lead film performances discussion in 2010. You don't want to talk about a recurring role she did on a TV show in 2009. Perhaps I should say I don't <laughs> want to spend too much time on it. Okay. But watching her in that and watching her commit to that character while also committing to the comedy of that character. And as I said, understanding what that character represents to Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful performance in that. And it made me. It made me realize, like I've I've always liked Julianne Moore as an actress. Uh, she's sort of some people really hate her. Uh, I know that our frequent poster designer Adam Rebataro hates her for some reason. Um, but uh, and there are certain things that she's been associated with, which is like melodrama and like really uh, kind of overplaying things. Like she'll always have a crying fit, and it will probably be annoying. Um, people just sort of I don't know. I think like. Her sort of manic character in Boogie Nights and her crazy character in Magnolia. Uh, and I shortcuts. Think, and shortcuts, yeah, absolutely. I think people just associate that with her. But I love her in uh, you know Far From Heaven, and I liked her in The Hours. I think she's a very good actress. And in Big the Lebowski. Kids... Oh, Big Lebowski, absolutely. The Forgotten. I didn't see that one. <laughs> I did. It's terrible. We can't you can't win them all. Sometimes you just got to pay the pay the bills. But um, but in the kids are all right. She of course, is sort of the more free-spirited uh, character. So much so that when you when you see that the, that the kids' names are, okay, well, a normal, boring name, and, a, and the boy's name is Laser, uh-huh. and then you see the two moms, you immediately like, I think I know which one named Laser. <laughs> and, and she, and it's, it's almost like that little, that little thing is what she took. She said, I need to I need to play someone who could conceivably name her son Laser. And she does. And she she has to be like this free spirit without being you know the stereotype of a free spirit. Like she is also kind of neurotic and she needs love and she needs affection and while also being flighty and she also understands that her character is probably going to come off as annoying to the audience. And uh, and she doesn't care. She just commits to what the character requires, even when that character is being annoying. And then as the film goes on, you know, hurtful to the to some of the other characters that we've come to know. Um, and as, as I've said before, like, an actor's commitment to what the character requires, whether it be like Matt Damon in True Grit or Julianne Moore in The Kids Are All Right... I always appreciate that. I, I I wonder if she she probably didn't think about this because this is very petty, and of course no actor has ever been petty, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, should have thought about that before I said it. But uh, just this idea of like, you know, I know that I'm going to be kind of the one, kind of the sticking out like a sore thumb because Ruffalo is just really, as I said, very naturalistic and, mm-hmm. and fluid. And Annette Benning is we'll actually talk about in a second. Okay, and and Annette Benning is kind of playing down because mm-hmm. uh, she can be a very extreme actress, as we've seen from like uh, American Beauty. But she's kind of playing, kind of playing down and being more. All right, we'll talk about gra- it in a second. More grounded. Sorry, uh, <laughs> and Julianne Moore must have known. Like, I'm really going to be the wild card here. People could probably not respond well to me, but whatever. I have to play this role, and I'm just going to play it the way it is. 
and uh, and I really respected that, and I liked her performance quite a bit. Well, I said it would be a one-two punch, and uh, I have not been the least bit secretive about what my choice is. Mm. It's Annette Benning from The Kids Are All Right. All right. And, all right, Annette Benning, very successful actress. Oh, yeah. I don't mean just in terms of, like, she's been in big movies, but she's a very respected actress. She is very wealthy. She's, um, you know, sort of Hollywood royalty in that she's, like, part of this couple of you know, she's married to Warren Beatty. Like they're right. a team of and they very met, well-respected actors. And they met on this kind of glamorous film yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what and all all this has been true of her for a very long time at this point. Mm. And so maybe I'm projecting or or my own uh, whatever feelings toward about rich people, or maybe uh, uh, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. But she's uh. She's achieved a whole lot, and so it's surprising both both in this and in a, an earlier film from um, I guess last year uh, that wasn't good, but she was getting called Mother and Child. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we're talking about kids, are all right here. She's able to play someone who hasn't achieved everything. She's not that she's sad, not that she's wasted her life. She, you know, she she's not full of regret. Right. She just still has dreams and ambitions i think and um they're not it's not a big part of who her character is uh and then it's not a surface part of who her character is right but it's it's there she's relatable and you know suburban in this in this way that i recognize from i mean other people from myself you know mm-hmm. i'm doing pretty well in my life right now compared to a lot of people but uh i still have self-doubt yeah um i still have frustrations um and it it, it's it's just um it was very compelling to me the way that these under the surface things uh they were under the surface and coming in from the corners (laughs) if i can if i can mix metaphors at all times even though that's not on the page or on the surface at all what her character is. Her character uh, drinks. Mm-hmm. Her character uh, is the breadwinner of the family. She's the responsible one. Um, and um, I, I I think she's probably the person who... She's probably the, the type of person who occasionally has thoughts of would my life have been better if I had married someone else or hadn't had kids? Right. And then maybe feels bad about thinking those thoughts. But I get that from her. And the fact that I get all that from her when that's nowhere on the page uh, is a testament to Annette Bening's performance. The character, I mean, as as we know, I, I have some problems with the writing. The character could have seemed very, I mean, all the characters could have seemed pretty simplistic. Um, she could have, She very easily could have been shrill. She could have been shrill. And, and I'll be honest, at at the risk of like pissing off some of our listeners in these, in this lesbian relationship, she could have, it would have been very easy to just say, I guess I'm the man, right? I guess I'm the masculine one. And she has certain masculine traits, yeah. but she is undeniably feminine. Because that is people who don't know gay uh, people who don't know gay people. That's how they think it works. But uh, yeah, it doesn't actually work like that. If you watch modern family, they've done a good job of, uh, at the beginning of this season, I think it was the first episode, actually, of the second season. 
Have they you watched s- all of Modern Family? Yeah. Okay. They sort of explore. They they, they explained that in Cameron and Mitchell's relationship, they're both the man because they're both men. Mm-hmm. And, and it's as simple as that. Like both of these people are women, and you know you shouldn't try to force them. I've stopped talking about kids are all right, and I'm just talking okay. about people who don't know uh, how gay relationships work. And I think it's the idea that like you get two people together and one of them might be more driven in their career and the other might not be. It's more a function of that. But that's the thing is on the page, she does have masculine traits and a less much like Julianne Moore has. I won't say feminine traits, but just these other things that are just kind of, you know, I don't know, just has no real direction and trying mm-hmm. to find an identity and all that. But she's also the one out there working with her hands every day. That's true. So she has masculine traits too. I guess there's that. Um, but I mean, as far as like, like character traits, mm-hmm. yeah, someone could say that about Annette Bening, but she doesn't play that. She chooses to take that into her femininity, and she's like I said, undeniably feminine, but still driven in in the way you're talking about. And and I'm not sure. It's it's very interesting. When I think of Annette Bening, I do think of like the, I think of the Grifters, I think of Bugsy, American Beauty, and Being Julia, though I never saw it. But from what I know of it. Not necessarily a subtle character. I, I like her as an actress. I like that she finds humani- humanity in characters that are often kind of extreme, um, like in American Beauty. And and I love her in Bugsy, but she's still playing like a very stylistic type character. Yeah, she's great in Bugsy. Um, but in Kids Are All Right, I do like how grounded she is in reality and humanity and refuses to just play this trait or that trait, but make them all into one person. So, yeah. All right, lead actor. All right. Um, quickly, I will mention Michael Caine and Harry Brown. Okay. All right. The movie's in many ways ridiculous. It's not made in a way that's ridiculous, but everything about it is 1980s Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. But it, it, ju- it just has a much classier coating on it. It's, it's directed and shot in a way that makes it feel like it's grounded in reality. It's written in a way that is not very extreme. And then, of course, at the core of it is Michael Caine, who's an old man. And the script, wisely, calls attention to that frequently. But in his performance, I mean, there's a guy who, yes, much like in Taken, he has a set of certain skills, or whatever it is they say. and um, Or a certain set of skills, maybe, was what it was. Um, but... Uh, but th- that was a long time ago. Like, he was in the... He was in, you know, the military. But that was... a that was a long time ago. Since then, he's excuse me, he's gotten old and his skills aren't what they used to be. That the instinct is still there, but he has gotten old. Mm-hmm. And Michael Caine plays the realization of that. He doesn't play it as some superman who under the right set, set of circumstances will just burst forth and be awesome at everything. Really, the only thing that he still has is the realization that it's not the biggest deal to kill an enemy. Mm-hmm. That's all he has. But as far as physical capability, it's not necessarily there. But he still has the will to do it and that and that realization in the back of his mind. And that's what I like about his performances. It's very vulnerable. You really don't... You watch Death Wish, you know, I think Charles Bronson's going to win this whole thing. You watch Harry Brown, and because Michael Caine is not afraid to look frail... You don't know if if he's going to turn out well here. And uh, just a really great performance in a movie that's uh, okay. And that's, that's just the one you were just mentioning. 
Huh? I'm saying this is, that isn't even your cho- your choice yet. <sighs> you know, I was going to stick to one if <laughs> right. uh, you hadn't done this thing. Uh, okay, and then, but also, I'm going to talk more about this other one because it's conceptual. Okay. All right. This is a character who realizes, just as we realize, that though we've thought that he's been that he is supporting, he is a lead in his own life, and that is Rupert Grint playing Ron Weasley in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. In part spite, one. Part one. Thank you. Uh, in spite of the fact that uh, Harry po- that it is called Harry Potter. Uh, there are there are three leads in these movies. It's not just Harry. He's the he's the focal point, but the other two have grown just as much. And and I've always been intrigued by Ron because they have never the the films have never uh dismissed how it must feel to be best friends with the chosen one. You know? And then Of course it, if you were a Buffy fan, you would know that this is uh you're talking about the movie, Buffy the Vampire no, Slayer? I'm talking, I'm talking the, about movies here, David. The TV show. I'm, ta- I'm just saying that the, J.K. Rowling wasn't the first one to explore that. Oh, okay. I haven't read the books either. I'm talking about the movies. Okay. I'm not talking about 30 Rock either. That's right. I remember. <laughs> I, I hold grudges. <laughs> um. <laughs> but anyway, Rupert is to... Uh, Rupert. Uh, Ron is to uh, Harry Potter as Xander is to Buffy. Okay. So. Um, but I. But also... And, and here's the thing is... is you you having said just that, uh, just said that. Like I'm sure that there's also an added dynamic of being playing second fiddle to a woman, which uh, a man could find emasculating. Depending on I know I know nothing about that character. I don't know if he would or not. Whereas with Harry and Ron, they're both men, and as we've seen from husbands, Glengarry Glen Ross. 12 Angry Men, and almost any other movie about friend, uh, male friends, uh-huh. there's going to be a sense of competition there. And you, you can't compete with the chosen one. Uh-huh. Either, like, in, you know, skills and magic, or per- people's perception. And, and it really comes out in this film. This is, in my opinion, Ron's movie. Um, even, even though he's gone for sections of it. But there is a scene when he is faced with everything he fears... And at first, we see, oh, a bunch of spiders. Spiders are scary. And then the real fear comes in, uh-huh. the deep fear, a fear that, quite frankly, I relate to a lot uh, <laughs> and have my whole life. Not in spiders, too, by the way. I don't like spiders. But, um, <laughs> but just, like, characters saying things to him, like Hermione, who he's obviously in love with and is obviously in love with him, but his deep fear is that, of course, she loves Harry, and her saying stuff like, who could ever see you past him? And that, I can't imagine how horrifying that would be to actually, it's one thing to be thinking that, it's another thing when you hear someone, the the person you love most, saying that. Mm -hmm. And Rupert Grint's performance in that moment is wonderful, and then when he finally decides, yeah, I'm going to, I may be his sidekick, I may be his bumbling friend at times, but I am still me. I'm the lead in I'm the lead in my own life and mm-hmm. I have choices to make here and I'm going to make the right choice and he does the right thing. Yeah. And just his arc over that over that film over the whole series certainly, but I think it has finally come to a head here. We saw glimpses of it in the fourth film. Mm-hmm. But when Harry of course stood to be 
you know, have a lot of glory, and mm-hmm. then Ron is just his dumb friend. But, like, in this one, he really has come into his own, both as a character, but also as a person. He has come to certain realizations, and it's really invigorating to see that character uh, finally arrive there, and to see how uh, expertly Rupert Grint plays all of those uh, emotional beats, whether it be the comedy, which Ron is always associated with, or the intense drama of being faced with who you thought you were and then embracing who you actually are. So, like, in the course of the film, he goes from being what we all thought he was, which was supporting, and what he thought he was, Mm -hmm. into what he is, which is a lead. In his own life. In his own life. Yes. And in the course of the series. Um, Speaking of the course of the series, I want your prediction right now. Okay. 2011, certainly now we have... A field of 10 for Oscar Best Picture nominations. Mm-hmm. The Harry Potter saga is coming to an end. Prediction right now, does Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 get a Best Picture nomination at the Oscars? Yes. Okay. At the very least because of the money behind it. Right. If it got the, bl- if it got the blind side a nomination, it could get <laughs> this one. Okay. Um, my Best Actor, I want to real quick, real quickly... Mention. <laughs> I'm just. I spent probably a minute, I'm maybe a minute a and a half, here. on Michael Caine. I'm just ball busting. I want to. I want to real quickly mention James Franco in 127 Hours. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it a subtle performance, but it, that would be boring if it were a subtle performance. He's the I only seen guy. The film yet. Oh, okay. He's the only guy in most of the film, so uh, he can't really afford to be subtle. But. Um, and he's not feeling subtle things, I would yeah. have to assume. But uh, James Franco shows a real ab- ability to slip into a character and um, embody him not only in just the things that he says, but in uh, in physicality. And, and, you know, there's a lot of close-ups of his face in the movie and just in terms of facial tics and speaking mannerisms to just become... I don't know enough about Aaron Ralston to know if he's doing an imitation but just to become a whole person where you see that the way this person thinks is reflected in the way they act and the way they talk and the way they blink and the way they look around. Mm-hmm. Um, so good performance there. But the one I really want to talk about, because again, like Roger Deakins gets points for difficulty is Edgar Ramirez in Carlos. This is a five and a half hour movie and he's in almost every frame of it. And he has to take a character and um, change him by a matter of inches, you know? I mean, he... he go, In most movies, they're about 90 minutes for a character to go from point A to point B. This is four hours longer than that, and he's going from point A uh, to point B. Um, and uh, uh, he... he j- just the way that we're able to track where Carlos is mentally, uh, he almost does a... He almost does a little dance to the movie where he's... He'll embody who he says he is and who he wants to be, or at least who he wants people to think he is. And then a part of his real self, his vain self, uh, you know, his um, the the demagogue that he really wants to be will show through. And then he'll retreat back into being who he was. But every time it shows through, it comes a little stronger till he ends up being the bloated demagogue that he is by the end of the film. And... uh it's just, um, I don't know, sometimes when I, uh, you know, usually when I write a review for the website, 
I outline it first. And I feel like this is the kind of job that would have taken a lot of outlining. Just because just in terms of how massive it is and how subtle it is and how how measured he has to be to make sure that that Carlos is exactly where he needs to be in every scene and every frame and every shot at know, every point in time. I didn't know that's how you wrote reviews. That's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I just start writing and see where I end up. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. That's that's interesting. Um, I mean, outlining basically says, here's a list of the points that I want to hit. Let's do them in this order, and let's try to think of some transitions. Mm. That's basically how I outline. Anyway. Huh, interesting. We'll talk about this later. Okay. Um, all right. We're done with the acting ones. Writer. Okay. Best writer of the year. Uh, that's not. What, that's not what we're discussing. Um, Your favorite ag- screenplay of the year. Okay, it's not that at all either. Okay, what is it? Um, it's a film that I did not really love. But well, how would you describe it? it? It is. It's a very distinct, very unique. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> only ever unique um, uh, screenplay that stood out uh, amongst the list of movies I've seen. Now, of course, there's stuff like Social Network, but that's been talked about a lot. What? Go ahead. It, it, Social Network has not been talked it about? Has. Is that what you're... Yes, okay. Um, and I really like that script, but I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about another movie. Um, well, get, re- get ready to talk about it. Called... Leaves of Grass. Oh, which I didn't see. Okay, it's uh, Tim Blake Nelson wrote and directed it, and uh, and I I like him as a filmmaker and as a writer. Um, I saw a film he made called uh, The Gray Zone, and it's a uh, he's he's just very he's very interesting and and it's not a very traditional uh, story structure um, in Leaves of Grass, and it's just about it's it's a movie about you know twin brothers and. We've seen stuff like that before, and of course, oh, they're total opposites. Um, but it has—it seems to have a good sense of how twins would probably interact. While and it gives each of them very much uh, his own voice, and the twins are played by are both played by uh, Edward Norton. Uh, and and there's like a rich uh, a rich collection of supporting characters that uh, that are all uh, very interesting. And it's just, and the the dialogue is intriguing, and just, I don't know, just the structure, the characters that he creates, and the the arc of the of the film is just really intriguing. And and while I while I don't respond, while the film is tonally very strange, and it kept me from really embracing it, I do have a hard time shaking it from my mind. Like I do find my mind returning to it frequently, and I feel like that's. The acting is very good, but I feel like it's largely a function of the writing and his willingness to just be to just kind of go wherever he wants to go instead of just be hemmed in by like a traditional three act structure. All right. Well, I'm going to mention one that's also a writer director, but this is just my mention, not my winner. Okay. I already said what my winner was. Um, uh, also a writer director, but the reason it's uh, it's it's Chris Morris's Four Lions, mm. and I think the only reason why it's not my pick is I think that Chris Morris is the kind of writer director that um, I don't know that his words exist on the page in the with the same force that they do once he's directing them. The two sides of his creative being need each other, you know. And that I don't know that he's uh, 
Uh, I don't know that you could pick up and read the screenplay for Four Lions and get everything out of it. It de- it depends on him having directed it and you know his his uh in- incredibly um incredibly unique uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh his in- incredibly audacious uh mm. sense of humor. Um but no, the one that has been talked about ad nauseum that I can't help but pick is the social network ah. because it is um I mean, you know, Aaron Sorkin was a playwright first and um, uh, plays often exist longer as plays than just stage productions because they can't exist on their own. And I feel like the social network screenplay, I mean, David Fincher took it and, you know, multiplied it, uh, you know, as long as, as well as everyone else in the cast and, and in the, in the crew and Trent Reznor and everything. But uh, I think on its own, the social network is something you could put on a bookshelf and it would be a great screenplay Hmm. just to read. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's a, it's, I often find as, as much as I've said in the past that like, I am sometimes frustrated by Aaron Sorkin and as, as I, as I watch more of his stuff, uh, I learn to appreciate it and view him just like like David Mamet. Uh-huh. Um, I do find myself returning to movies that I've seen. For example, uh, this evening, uh, I wanted I was going Jen and I were going to kill some time while we ate some pizza, so we threw in the Social Network uh-huh. and watched like the first twenty twenty five minutes of it. Uh-huh. And not to imply that his films aren't challenging, but they're just so much fun to listen yeah. to yeah and and of course that's a fun like you said it's a function of everybody involved the actors and the filmmaker and as we've seen from i've not seen all of sports night of course but uh as we've seen from some of it the actors can really elevate his material or they can just kind of leave it where it is yeah um which is also very true of david mamet v- ah very much so yeah but uh but yeah he's just a he's just a fun writer his 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 words are very alive all so. right, we're down to it. Okay. Director. Now, this one I actually did have two, but I one of them I was not going to talk about uh, nearly as much as the other. Uh, ben Affleck's The Town. Uh-huh. Uh, ben Affleck with Gone Baby Gone declared himself as a surprisingly able director. With The Town, not the best writer. It uh-huh. is, uh, it's, it certainly is not a perfect film. But from a directorial standpoint, he manages to... Uh, he... He he captures the hu- like the just the one on one interactions very well, and then of course the exciting bank you know uh, not bank heist but you know armored car heists and mm-hmm. and all of that. Uh, you really feel like you're there. It's not it's it's quick cutting in a way that like you know increases your heart rate without confusing you like in a standard uh, big budget action film. And it's uh, and he's just really good as a director of of manipulating your emotions without being manipulative, if that makes any sense. You know, you, he always kind of has you in the palm of his hand from a directorial standpoint. That, that script has problems. But, um, but the one I wanted to go into more, uh, a bit more detail about, although probably not much more than that now that I think about it, is uh, Martin Scorsese, Shutter Island. Okay. Um, did you see Shutter Island? Yeah. Okay. Uh, did love I, it. Nor did I. But from a directorial standpoint, I liked the tone that he created because it's not his usual tone. This is like Cape Fear. 
Uh, and I remember when I first, when the movie first starts and it's just that bombastic music, I remember like in my head, I'm sorry, everybody, I'm about to swear in my head. I'm just like, oh, fuck, he's back to Cape Fear. And I See, do not. And I, as someone who really likes Cape Fear, you know, when they pull up to the gates at Shutter Island, mm-hmm. at no point during my viewing experience was I enjoying the movie as much as the, at that moment. Okay. That's the best part of the movie for me. That's the best part? No, Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Yeah, exactly. Right. You knew where I was headed. <laughs> um, I should... Oh, damn it. Maybe under miscellaneous, I should have brought up Ted Levine because he's not... He's supporting... Well, we're but, mentioning him now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where you and I differ. I was I was more than on board with the film during the bombastic yeah. score because I love Cape Fear. And the... Uh, but the film continues with that tone, and after a while I got on board with just the... Just the ridiculousness of of how the story is being told and just the he embraced the melodrama inherent in this and as as everyone knows of course Martin Scorsese is just a he's a fan of old time filmmaking mm-hmm. and just like big extreme emotions even in the midst of like a what I would say is like a psychological thriller I'm not sure if I'd say horror but there is some of that I guess um and just playing to that and playing uh just the film is it's fun it doesn't betray the fact that for this character this is not fun but it's just a it's just a very energetic film the way the way that it is directed i i i like the film i didn't love it but i i respect how i guess i keep going i i keep saying the word commitment i respect his commitment to just playing up the the or acknowledging at least the goofy nature of this of the story he's telling, um, even and it can be summed up by, of course, that opening scene mm-hmm. when they pull up to the gates of Shutter Island. Well, the opening scene is on the ferry or the boat. I'm sorry, the the almost yeah. opening scene where yeah. they where they uh, pull into Shutter Island, and yeah. then of course, and then right after that with John Carroll Lynch, like I was loving the movie at that point. Yeah, and then anyway, and then it became, and there are parts of it. It was much more powerful to me at the beginning than it was at the end. But that Ted Levine scene, which is not necessary, by the way. Yeah. But because the director is like, well, this is a, it's, a, its own little Oscar winning short film right here. Yeah. And I know it kind of distracts, but it also adds to the tone. The tone of the film can be summed up in that scene. Just... <laughs> How ridiculous and balls out crazy it is. Yeah. I just really like it. Yeah, that scene is like... Cause I, I'm going to be a little mean here because I didn't like Shutter Island very much. I think less than mm. less than you did. Um, but, like, that's <laughs> that scene to me is like... Imagine you're back in high school in class and your mind is kind of wandering. Maybe it's after lunch. You're a little sleepy and all of a sudden... Your teacher starts screaming, and suddenly you're paying attention again. Yeah. That's what that scene was like for me. Because by that point in the movie, I had kind of like... I was kind of over it a little bit, uh, and that I snapped back to attention. With that, that, that scene is uh, amazing. In one scene, Ted Levine out crazies <laughs> himself in si- in the entire movie of Silence <laughs> yeah. of the Lambs. Yeah. Um, all right. For me, let me mention a couple real quick. I just want to mention Banksy and Exodus of the Gift Shop. But oh, yeah. I don't actually know how to how to quantify what he did. So <laughs> he either did an ins- just. An incredible amount, or an or only an amazing amount. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just want to mention uh, Exit of the Gift Shop. Uh, I also want to give you know Lisa Chilodenko a mention for what's clearly a very collaborative effort. 
I think, mm. between her and her her actors, Annette Benning, uh, Jillian Moore, and Mark Ruffalo, and Mia Vazhikovska and Josh Hutchinson as well. Um, and to take, um, to allow those actors to really shine and still also keep uh, a consistency, not only in tone, but in pace and um, cadence. Whenever I can't really describe what it is I like about what a director's done, I like to refer to the cadence of the film because no one knows what I mean and I don't even quite know what I mean, but it just sounds right. So I like the cadence. of. It sounds like the kind of thing a person who knows what they're saying would say. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But uh, no surprises here. Uh, It's the film I've mentioned more today than any other. I'm going to, my hat is off to Edgar Wright and Scott Pilgrim versus the world Mm -hmm. because I feel like uh, Edgar Wright and some people are going to, bristle at me saying this and i think that's just uh, a further evidence of the fact that comedy is not taken as seriously as drama right but uh edgar wright not, not as many films under his belt but might be in a league with david cronenberg in terms of i feel like their movies turn out exactly the way they saw them in their head i'd say that's about right um and sometimes when yeah, most of the time when a director is uncompromising it's a bad thing mm-hmm. because they don't have that level of control over every aspect. You would say most of the time that's a bad thing? Yeah, I think film is a collaborative effort. Um, I, 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 I don't mean uncompromising with you know the studio and the executives, oh, okay. but I mean uncompromising in terms of, no, I saw it this way in my head. This is right. what we're going to do. Uh, sometimes that sort of stubbornness, most of the time I think that sort of stubbornness could be a bad thing. But when you're as assured and competent uh, and and just in control of everything as David Cronenberg is or as Edgar Wright is, you can actually have a movie that turns out exactly the way you saw it in your head. Mm-hmm. Which I'm, I'm speculating. I haven't asked him I, or may have even met him. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I just get the feeling that he is um, he is truly the author of this film. In, like, And I almost... In uh, David Fincher is another guy who's in this uh, in this camp. Like, I almost feel bad for his actors. Like, they're gonna do stuff over and over again because it's gonna be right. Uh, and it's, Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, everybody. So, um, yeah, it's Scott Pilgrim versus the World because more than any other film this year, it emerged fully formed uh, from someone's psyche. Even though it is an adaptation, I understand. I understand that, but. Uh, just he really stayed on the ball the whole time. Well, it was it's an adaptation of something that has no inherent limitations except the page. Uh-huh. It's literally whatever uh the yeah. comic book writers and and artists, although was it the same uh, writer and artist or did he just write it? Uh I think it was the same. I don't know a lot about comics. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to make that clear. I think it was the same guy, but I can't okay. remember. But either way, like whatever whatever you Brian think Leo of Brian O'Malley. Yes. Pretty I sure got every, everything. I got everything except the Brian. I thought it was Jason, but that's not right. Um, but yeah, whatever you think of, you can draw, and it's fine. Not not really the case with movies, although you yeah. can do more now than you ever could. Yeah. But even then, like to translate what's in a person's brain into something that we can all see and seems tangible is crazy. It it almost seems as though Edgar Wright was not aware that there was such a thing as limits. <laughs> uh, I don't even mean in movies. I mean as far as people. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and the film feels like someone who just was going to do what he wanted to do and what he needed to do. 
yeah, it's a really, it's just a jo- such a joyful film that movie. Yeah. But uh, all right, so we've got. Uh, so I feel like we've we've recommended a lot of you know a lot of things that uh, people may not have been aware of or, or wasn't on the you know in the forefront. Would you would you say that you recommend the movies that these individual individual achievements yeah. are? I want to talk right. about. Um, I'm just going to say, uh, you know, one of my favorite podcasts is Film Spotting. We don't talk about them that often. That's true. On here, but they are great. And uh, I was just today, just this morning, listening to them talk about their thing they do every year called the Golden Brick, which is they award the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award to the film from the past year that they think uh, not enough people have seen and best reflects the quote unquote Film Spotting aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And they recommended Dogtooth. Dogtooth, okay. I think, and I know you haven't even seen this, right. but I think if we had a golden brick, the mo- the underseen film that best represents the battleship pretension aesthetic is Four Lions. Okay. People really need to see this. Well, I know I got to so see it. I, yeah, I highly recommend it to everyone. It will be um, out on DVD Tuesday, March 8th. Really? DVD and Blu-ray, yeah. That's very exciting. And of course, uh, thanks to everybody for coming out to our live show. Yeah, it was great. I, I think, hope, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, it hasn't happened yet. Certainly, uh, recording. Not, certainly there was no terrorist attack or anything, <laughs> right? All right. So, uh, yeah. So there's our list. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Yes. Uh, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. Please do. Please go there. Read the blog. Leave comments. Uh, or in iTunes, you can email us, david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension. Or you can follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, the official Twitter feed of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review podcast, previously on at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. All right, and uh, wanted to remind everybody that probably I'm going to say next episode because that will be our four year mark, and maybe just for the f- uh, oh shoot, yeah, I think next episode okay. we'll we'll start the donation drive. We'll start yeah. talking about it at least. Yeah, we got we're getting some prizes lined up. Yeah, um, you know you know who our guests are. You know they're hilarious and have mm-hmm. put out hilarious works. Indeed. Um, so uh, look forward to that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so, so I won't play up the, the donation aspect right now. We'll talk more about it next week. So, uh, but yeah, in the meantime, uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.